Well, if you would, this evening, turn to the book of 2 Kings. We'll be looking at 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. Now, if you weren't with us last week, then perhaps you don't know, we're picking up kind of in the middle of a story. And, of course, by story, I don't mean uh, a fictional story. I mean a real event that happened historically in a real place and time. You have three kings. One is the king of Israel, Jehoram, a wicked king of the line of Ahab, in fact, Ahab's son. Then we also have King Jehoshaphat, as scripture says, was a good king, and yet he was chastised more than, on more than one occasion for associating with this line of Ahab. And then we have the king of Edom. It doesn't tell us anything about this king, good or bad, but we know this people is not the people of God. And this particular king is probably not coming uh, by his own volition, but probably because he is already under uh, the thumb, so to speak, of Judah or Israel. And so they're coming to the king of Moab, who has rebelled against Israel's rule. And as we come to this section, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever expected the hammer to come down on you as a boss or from a boss, a parent, an officer of the law, or some other person, only to find instead undeserved, unexpected grace. You see, this is the situation with King Jehoram. King Jehoram was already told by Elisha in this context. He says, I would really have nothing to do with you except Jehoshaphat is with you. And when he comes to hear the words of Elisha, he is fully expecting Elisha to say what he thinks is the truth that God has called them together to destroy all three kings and their armies in the desert. But instead, Elisha says this, beginning at verse 16. And Elisha said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink, you, your livestock, and your animals. This is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city, and shall fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. The next morning, about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom, till the country was filled with water. When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, this is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. And when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities, and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kirharaseth, and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through. 
opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. Then he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place, and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. As we consider this real event, history, and the life of God's people, God's word beneficial to us, which shall not come back void, let us bow briefly in prayer. Father, may this word fall on believing ears and understanding hearts, that we might apply this word to our daily lives, that your Holy Spirit might challenge us, encourage us, if necessary, rebuke us. May the words and the thoughts spoken here and thought here be pleasing in your heart, or else pass away, never to be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that this particular passage reminded me of was another story just a few chapters or even a book away. And that was earlier in the time of King Solomon. You know the story of King Solomon. Solomon was the son of David. He was the chosen successor to the throne. And despite the obstacles, God placed him upon that throne. And early in his reign, he was asked by God to ask God of one thing that he wanted. And Solomon could have asked for riches, he could have asked for a long reign or a long life and all those different things. And we know what he asked. He asked for wisdom. Wisdom to reign and to rule over God's people. He asked for the one thing that was particularly important for his rule as the king of God's people. And he was commended for that. And as we go through the story, we're amazed to find that God not only gives him wisdom, but he also gives him riches. And he expands his kingdom and gives him great power. And he gives him more and more and more. You see, God is a God of abundance and overwhelming grace. This doesn't mean that God's going to give us all of our heart's desire if our heart is desiring worldly things and that God is a special genie God who's going to give us everything we want. But often this is how God's word works is he gives us unexpected treasures of his grace. We might ask him for one thing and it's not enough. He'll give us more. So here we see one of these places where we see the abounding grace of the Lord, we also see where he gives overwhelming victory to his people. And yet we also get a glimpse of the desperation that we would have without the Lord. First of all, the abounding grace of the Lord. Here's the story. By this point, you've understood these three kings and their armies are out in the territory of Edom. It's out in the wilderness. They thought perhaps there was a water source from which they could get the precious water they needed to go and fight the battle, but they found that the stream was empty. They had no water. They had for seven days marched around that territory, found no water, and they were in desperate straits. In fact, the king of Israel, Jehoram, has already said, I just know that the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. Jehoshaphat, however, says we need to ask a prophet what's going on here. Is there not a prophet of the Lord here through whom we may inquire? And this is where we pick up the passage here 
They're going to the Lord, asking him what his purpose is, what his will is, when their people are in danger of dying of thirst. And here is what Elisha says. He says, as the Lord lives, before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. A reminder that Jehoram there has no regard uh, before God. God does not regard him. He is completely outside of God's kingdom. An unbeliever, wicked to the core. And yet, here is what God says. Thus says the Lord, verse 16, which we've already read, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. You shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink your livestock and your animals. Here's what he says. First, that stream bed will be filled with water. Now, it's interesting. When I looked up this passage to get the picture on the bulletin, sometimes I'll look for images on the Internet that may not be copyrighted. We might not have a problem with to print in the bulletin and so forth. And it was interesting, many of these passages had a picture of a shovel because the King James Version many of the other translations say uh, that verse 16 says, dig trenches or dig ditches. And so here's the understanding that uh, it was a part of their effort to go out and to do these things. The, the, the problem is we're not quite sure what to make of that verb. It's an unusual uh, tense here or form uh, for this kind of thing. It can mean perhaps uh, an imperative sense, although it's not an imperative to go do something. Instead, it's what we call an infinitive absolute, and that particular type of verb is, is so different we don't know what to make of it when it's by itself. So it could be that he's saying, I will do this, as our translation says, or he could be saying, you go out and dig the trenches or the cisterns or ditches for this stream bed. Whatever the case, he's saying this, there will be trenches in the stream bed. Either I'll put them there, or you go dig them. And what's going to happen is something you will find it hard to believe. I will fill all these trenches without you seeing rain or wind. Now it's interesting, when we think of God and his miraculous power and his divine ability to do amazing and wonderful things, sometimes we forget that God can work through ordinary means. How could I say this would be ordinary, that they would not see the wind or the rain, but all of the stream bed would be filled up? Well, remember, they're in the territory of Edom. There is a territory here in which, as they go further east, it is very mountainous. And evidently, what took place, we think, from what happened here, is that there was a rainstorm that took place in the mountains of Edom, away from the people of Israel and the armies of Israel and uh, Judah and Edom and Moab. And when that rain came, it was such a rainstorm that down through the mountains came flash flooding and water that filled gently by the time it reached the place where they were, the stream bed where they were. And so here it was. They now had a full stream of water. And now there was enough, not only for the army, but also their animals or their beasts. In fact, two different terms here are given for the term animal. One is the beast of burden. 
the other is the animals that they brought with them to slaughter, either for food or for sacrifices. And it says that all of your beasts, all of your armies will have plenty of water. You think, okay, God's answered their prayer. He's going to give them water. Now they're going to be able to go out and fight the battle, or if they want, they can turn around and go home and just forget it all, whatever they're going to do. But instead, Elisha says this. He says in verse 18, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. He will also give the Moabites into your hand. In other words, he's saying to Jehoram, the king who believed that God was punishing them and was going to destroy them, thought that he somehow had some knowledge to tell everybody else's, even though he didn't really trust in the Lord. He trusted the golden calves that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had built and put up to say, these are the gods that drove you out of Egypt into the promised land. And God says to him, in the presence of Jehoshaphat, through the mouth of Elisha, it's not enough. It's not enough grace to give you what you want. I'm also going to give you victory. I will give you into your hands Moab. Remember, this is a mighty army that Misha has built up to oppose the people. They're ones who have rebelled against the, uh, the reign of Ahab. Once Ahab died, it's now been a few years, and, and here they are rebelling and continuing to rebel in this fashion. They've gone up. Uh, Jehoram has recruited Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom along the way. He says, God is going to give you the victory. Not only that, God says. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to completely devastate the land of Moab. Stop up every spring. Attack every fortified city, every best or choice city. Throw stones on all the fields. I will completely devastate through you the land of Moab. You think, wow, God, you didn't have to do all that. Jehoram doesn't deserve it. Jehoram is acting like a pagan king. Jehoshaphat, you've already said previously, it's not appropriate, Jehoshaphat, for you to ally yourself with those opposing God. Why should God be gracious to them? In part, it's because of the presence of Jehoshaphat, the one who does trust in the Lord, the one in whom an amazing victory had already taken place by this point. If you turn to the book of Second Chronicles, you know that the Ammonites and others had faced off against Jehoshaphat before, and Jehoshaphat was in such disarray and so down by the situation, all he could do is pray to God. And God told him, in essence, to worship him and that he would take care of the situation. And Jehoshaphat sent a choir out in front of the army to sing praises to God as they went into the enemy, and God delivered the people of Judah that day. This is the Jehoshaphat. And so here God is rewarding even Jehoram, to show and design, or show the design of who God is, even in the midst of Jehoram's unbelief. And it's interesting that he says this. Verse 20, the next morning about the time of offering the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom until the country was filled with water. Here it is. It happened in the morning as the sacrifice went up. 
we pass over that verse because we think, well, that just means it happened at that time in the morning. And yet I was reminded, reading this passage, reading commentaries on this passage, I was reminded there might have very likely been a connection between God's grace and the obedience of the people back in Jerusalem who were offering that sacrifice of God. At that moment, when that sacrifice is being offered up, God remembered his people and the blessing of goodness to be put upon them and upon that kingdom that was now following the Lord and the leadership of Jehoshaphat. And he at that moment brought to be his predictive prophecy that this water would come. God's grace abounding. Not only the water, but we're going to see in the next few verses, the victory as well. How many of you have humbled yourselves at times knowing that you're facing a spiritual battle? Perhaps it's a battle in relationship with somebody else. Perhaps it's a, a battle of temptation and sin. Perhaps it, it's a battle... Uh, because you're struggling with your finances or other things, and maybe you have asked the Lord to take away a particular temptation from your life. God will often graciously remove that from you. But you know when he does that, he doesn't stop there. He will often reward you and give you even more than you asked for. He might give you some of the consequences of now your obedience in him. And his grace is upon grace and gives you so much more. And I'm certainly not a pastor who's going to stand up here and say that if you just do certain things, then God is going to richly bless you with all kinds of worldly blessings. He may or may not do that according to his will. We know that God's people will suffer, they will be persecuted, they will experience difficult times and all those things, but God's grace is not only so much greater than our sin, but it is grace upon grace that God gives us. And here is the overwhelming victory, at least for the Israelites and the people from Judah. When all the Moabites heard the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor from the youngest to the oldest were called out and were drawn up at the border. Here they are lined up to face the enemy, and they look out upon the field, and they're expecting to see an army that, that might be coming up against them, a great number of people from Israel and Judah and Edom, and instead what they see is this. They see a land that had been dry the night before, and now they saw that it was filled with some kind of fluid. See, the perspective of the Moabites was this. They saw that water, but what they saw was the sun reflecting upon that water, and they saw blood. They said, surely, because this happened. This is, this is something that happened in the pages and annals of history and scripture. Uh, here it is. Many times, uh, what would happen in battle is somebody might win the battle because the people they were fighting against, the allies, got mad at each other and fought each other. And so it was easy pickings and victory for the ones opposing those who had not gotten along with each other before the battle. They thought this was the case. And so they look out and they see this blood and they say, behold, it is blood. And they call out to each other a great cry of victory to the plunder. To the spoil. And so rather than having their swords drawn and their readiness prepared to fight in battle, they go with complete abandon to go and get the riches of the army of Israel. 
And lo and behold, it was not blood, it was water. And as their minds discerned plunder and their eyes saw blood, the Israelites came out and they attacked them and they decimated the army to the extent that the Moabites fled before them. So here were the Israelites, the people from Judah and the people joining them from Edom, thinking in for seven days that they were going to die of thirst and now the tables have been turned, there's water in abundance, and now they have set the enemy to flight. Here's the ambush. The Israelites realize that the Lord's illusion did the work. The Israelites knew it was water. They'd already watered their animals or had begun to water their animals and other things. And here the people of, of the enemies, they saw that water, they saw blood, everything went awry for the enemy, and they come in and the Israelites attack, striking the Moabites as they went. And here's what they do. The army's actions then spoiled the land. They did what God told them to do. They overthrew the cities. They threw stones in all the land. They stopped up all the springs of water. And then they went to the capital, Kirharaseth, and the slingers, that is those with slingshots, to went around and surrounded the city. And the slingers' handiwork surrounded that capital to the point that they thought there would be total victory and annihilation of the enemy's army. What a turn of events. How did this take place? Was it Jehoram's great leadership? Was it Jehoshaphat's wonderful military aptitude? Was it the strength of the troops? No, not after seven days of being thirsty. Was it all of the ability and, and, and uh, aptitude of the troops? Obviously not. It was God who gave them the victory. You see, these are the things that happen in history sometimes that we tend to overlook. We, we sometimes look back at some of the details of a great battle. We wonder how in the world, how in the world did D-Day work? How in the world did General Washington's crossing of the Delaware work? How in the world did this battle or that battle take place? And sometimes we don't know the hand of the Lord behind it for good or for evil, for judgment or for reward. We don't know. But in this case, we know God gave them the victory. He said, I will give Moab into your hand. And he did, because God is a God who gives victory to his people. But what if you're not a people of the people of God? Here's a picture, a glimpse of what takes place among those who are God's enemies. Verse 26 says this, very disturbing. You see, there's desperation here. Misha, the king of Moab, thought he had everything going for him. The tables have been turned. Everything is now topsy-turvy. It looks like he's lost everything. His life is in danger. His kingdom is in danger. His troops are perhaps in danger of being annihilated. And when the king of Moab saw the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. He took crack troops. Those troops that he knew were the strongest and the best. These swordsmen who knew what they were doing, wielding the sword. And with great military strategy, he chose the one king that would have been the weakest, and that is the one who was not in complete alliance with Israel and Judah, but was a vassal king. And he says, there is a place where we can possibly break through. It might be our last opportunity to fight our way through this. 
advance. God's victory is great. And then it says, verse 27, he took his oldest son, who was to reign in his place. Doesn't tell us how old he is. He's the heir. He's the one that's going to be king next. He is the one born of his wife. And he takes him, and he places him on the wall, and he burns him to death to their god, Chemosh. This fiery sacrifice of the king's heir succeeds. Israel withdraws. And when you look at this, commentary writers say different things. What is this wrath that came upon Israel or came against Israel? Here are several different options. Option number one, it's God's wrath on Israel. In fact, the 19th century writers, Keel and Delich, say that this particular wrath of God was upon Israel for forcing the king into the corner and forcing him in that sense to do this abominable child sacrifice that was so opposed to the law of God that it brought the wrath of God even on Israel because of how horrible that practice is. Others say that God's wrath came on Israel here due to their scorched earth policy of war. Deuteronomy 20, they were supposed to keep some of the trees there. They were supposed to offer trees of peace and all those things, but it did not take into consideration that Moab is a designed enemy of God in which God himself told them to do this. So it can't be this option. It can't be the option that it was upon Israel due to the sin of Moab. So option number two is this. Some people would say, well, this is the wrath of this false god, Chemosh. Problem here is we're not polytheists. We don't believe that God Chemosh had the ability to stop Israel from taking over the army of Moab. Option number three is this: that Moab's inspired fury. In other words, when they offered this sacrifice, perhaps there was demonic activity and strength out of the terrible thing that they had done. It inspired them to near superhuman strength to go out and conquer their enemies. And this is the wrath upon Israel. It's possible. But I think option number four is the best. Israel, when both King Jehoram and King Jehoshaphat and their soldiers witnessed, as one writer describes, the reek of burning flesh, and know what has taken place here. Even those less faithful and those who perhaps were rejecting portions of God's word were so repulsed and horrified at the situation that it was Israel's indignation against such an evil act that had been done that they withdrew. Whatever the option is, here is an act of desperation. What can a pagan do who does not believe in a God of grace, who does not believe in the God of scriptures, who has the power to do amazing and powerful things, even intervening in the life of his people for their sake? What do we do in these situations? The pagan options without God's word or ways are very limited, aren't they? I think of the times when someone who's not a believer will come to the church and ask for help from the pastor or from uh, other people in the church. 
And they've turned to a good place. The church is a place for help. The church is a place they should turn to for wisdom and grace. But so often when they come in their desperation, they're not necessarily seeking the God of the Bible. They're seeking a God they can manipulate so that they can get something in benefit. They're seeking perhaps in their moralism, they're seeking a way in which if we get something from God, we'll find a way to pay him back. Or they might find that, hey, I'm trying to live a good life. Things have just not gone my way. But in, what, in that sense, I've earned my help from God. This is the pagan idea of divinity. We manipulate God in order to appease him and get what, he, what we want from him. Uh, we perhaps uh, live a good life in order to be rewarded because of our good works. We think, Lord, if you do this, I'll make a vow and I will pay you back somehow, some way, so that I won't owe you anything in the end. And that really should be unexpected to us. In fact, if you're honest, think of the times when you have done this with God. You say, God, if you'll do this in my life, then I'll do this. Or you think of those times when you say, God, I just have to do the right things and then you will love me and you will do what I want. Or you think, Lord, I can just pay you back with all the things you call me to do. But, but God is not the God of Moab, Chemosh, a God who can be manipulated. His wrath can be appeased by the burning flesh of the thing most precious to you, even your own son, the heir of the kingdom. God is the God of Israel who gives grace and great benefits to his people, not because they deserve it, Jehoram didn't. Not because they're the most wonderful people, even Jehoshaphat, even in all his being called a righteous king, he wasn't supposed to be associating with the line of Ahab, and here he is the third time. First Ahab, then Ahab's son Ahaziah, then Ahaziah's brother Jehoram. Jehoshaphat never really repents of the sin of associating with this wicked king. He doesn't deserve grace. And of course, the king of Edom, he doesn't even serve the God of Israel. And yet, who is God? Gives them abounding grace to show them, first of all, that Elisha is a true prophet of God. This is the first time we indicate, we, are, uh, we give the indication that he is recognized by the kings of Israel and Judah as being the true prophet in the line of Elijah. But he's also reminding us that God is the true God of grace. We don't serve a pagan God. We serve the God of the Bible. And the God of the Bible loves his people. And when we come to him, he loves to give good gifts to us because we're his children. Even when we come to him with the muck and the the dirtiness of our sin, even as we come to him with children who have had our hands caught in the cookie jar, even when we come to him as those adult children that have rebelled against our parents and our heritage and all those things, as we come as these children of guilt and guilt by association, yet God in his abundant grace overflows with his mercy even when we don't deserve it to not only forgive us of our sin, but to give us wonderful blessings. This is the God, the God of grace, the God of blood, the blood of the Son, Jesus Christ, who covered our sins, unlike the blood of this child 
who tried to appease Chemosh, the blood of God's son, not the son of David, not the son of Jehoram, not the son of Jehoshaphat, but here the son in the line of David, the son of God, came and gave his blood so that we don't have to give the blood of others. God's blood through Christ, Christ's blood given for us, and the wrath of God has been appeased. What a God of grace he gives abundantly that even the just and the justifier, Christ, will be given to us. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, we thank you for this sacrifice that was given for us. Lord, help us to be rightly repulsed and horrified at the idea of child sacrifice in our land, often known as abortion. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins. Lord, like Jehoshaphat, and unfortunately sometimes like Jehoram, Lord, we don't deserve your grace. But Lord, your grace is abounding, your victory is great, and your kingdom is powerful. Lord, remind us of these things. 